welcome to the Make Better Photos and Videos podcast. I'm Ross. And I am Gordon. Good day, Gordon. Good day, sir. Before we get into the episode, folks, I want to apologize for my audio on the last episode. There was a glitch uh, in the signal chain and I came across a bit distorted. I think I fixed that. You mean you're not distorted? I meant my voice was oh, distorted. Got it, got it, got as it. opposed to my mental faculties, ah, okay. which remain properly distorted and politically incorrect. <laughs> okay. So, hi, Gordon. This is episode number 225. And this time, we're going to talk a little bit about some practical tips for making interesting images. And in fact, what we're going to talk about is light painting close-up photographs. Hmm. Yes, indeed. That's a good thing, because while the last couple of episodes were very educational, there are undoubtedly folks who found them less enthralling. Well, to each their own, of course. Now on to this episode. Now, you do close-up and macro photography, right? Correct. It provides me a passage into or an insight into a different world, particularly when I'm doing higher magnification work. But it's all great fun, and it's a great challenge as well. So we know that depth of field can be an issue when we are very close. And even at small apertures, depth of field can be very limited. We've already talked about focus stacking, so I thought we should talk about the bigger issue that comes from using smaller apertures, and that is light. Ah, uh, is this going to be one of your exposition on the wonders of a flash? It could be. But what? I have a lower cost option in mind to deal with lighting close-up work. I would think that that rules out a big LED panel and maybe even a small LED panel if it's going to be low cost. What are you proposing? I'm proposing a pen light flashlight, but one with a reasonably high lumens output. If you mean one of those lithium powered lights, uh, they surely are not inexpensive. Oh, I agree. But I was thinking of something that was high output that would run on two or three AA or AAA batteries. Perhaps even one that allows one to focus or spread out the beam, such as the one that no one can see me holding right now, where the front lens slides back and forth. It's a V. Absolutely unknown brand Pocket Man. <laughs> Came in a box of five from Amazon. <laughs> Might have been $20 for all five. Uh, batteries not included. Okay, so you're right. Uh, I'm sure that the folks in Amazon have about a million different options. Do you, other than um, that no-name one, do you have any options in mind? No, I don't. You can certainly pay more for a name flashlight like a Surefire or a Streamlight. And they're great lights, but really for this, all you need is something that's small, meaning goes in your pocket, and bright enough so you can get in relatively close to the subject when the aperture is stopped down and the lens is fairly close. Okay. 
So, so far I like the, the low cost and I like the simplicity. But when I heard from you that you were planning on talking about this, I set up some apples in a reflector and attempted to get some first-hand insight. The first glitch that reared its ugly head was uh, a definition of small and bright. I have sundry flashlights lying around, and it very soon became obvious that they were way too bright. Can you elaborate or educate or any one of those things? I could even obliviate, but I don't think we'll do that today. Not today. I I mean, I think the answer is very simple. We use the principle of light that we already know about called the inverse square law. If I find that the light's too bright, I simply move it further back. I know if I double the light to subject distance, I'm going to get one quarter the level of light falling on the subject. And in fact, if I'm worried about spill from moving the light further back, I might use a piece of highly sophisticated gaffer tape to extend the barrel to make a snoot so I can keep the light focused. And of course, to make this effective, you want to limit all the other light, meaning as little ambient light as is possible. Well, I guess that sort of answers the question of why wouldn't I use a flash or a big LED panel? Well, first off, this is a creative experimental type exercise. And by design, it's highly random because you're using the ideas behind light painting. Every time, it's a little different. But now you're doing it at a close-up level. Yep, okay. I can see where this is going. So this would imply a static subject because the shutter open time should be fairly long if you're going to paint in the objects that you want. Yeah, that's going to be a critical thing. You're going to want a longer shutter open time so you have time to paint. And of course, then it means the camera will be on a tripod for stability. And you're going to use a small aperture, probably the smallest one in your lens, to maximize your depth of field. And then... I just take a pen light and move it around and paint the subject until I get the look that I want. Just so. So how do you figure out what shutter speed in ISO to set? Well, for ISO, set to the lowest that your camera can tolerate. Okay, that will give you the longest shutter speed that you can. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. As for what shutter speed, (laughs) you don't know. And that's what makes this whole exercise fun. You're going to experiment with different options and see what you get. You'll make some notes of what worked and what didn't work. Each exposure is going to be unique. Some will work out and a bunch of them will not. But that's how we learn. As we did in a quick demo together before this episode, you saw we tried at half a second, one second, two seconds, and four seconds. Clearly, we got the most light painting done with a four-second exposure, and we're able to be successful given the completely unentrancing subject matter. Yeah, the thing I, I got from the lesson just now is that if you're in manual mode, you can turn your 
shutter speed down to whatever you feel like because uh, it's irrelevant. Uh, all that you need to do is give yourself enough time to do the painting and then you keep painting until it looks okay. Yeah, that's pretty much it. And, of course, you remember that every exposure is going to be a little different. Because that happens anyway. As far as well, <laughs> but in this case, you are manipulating and aiming the light ah. and painting with it. And that's what makes it fun. You know, you can try, once you find an exposure value you like, now go make a bunch of images just using different painting techniques. Where do I point the light? How long do I point it there? Do I wobble it? Do I stripe it? It's a great deal of fun. I can see that uh, once I find a combination of light use and shutter speed and the ISO that I like, I could make all kinds of images where the only thing that I change is how long I keep that light painting. I should mention that when I went looking to test some of the thoughts I had, I tried a number of things, most of which didn't give me the effect I wanted. What I finally settled on was shooting low ISO, apertures of 22, 16, 18, somewhere there, and then underexposed the ambient till I had an almost black screen, and then did funky things with the flashlight. I got some pretty moody but very interesting images. I haven't tried this on really small stuff, but that's coming. And if it ever snows again, I know some snowflakes that are going to have my name on it. Yeah, that could be a lot of fun as well, to light paint on snowflakes. The one thing that you mentioned, using underexposure, that implies using a semi-automatic or a program-type mode. My contention is that you'll have the greatest success, although it will require the most experimentation, to use the camera fully in manual mode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see that now. And in fact, what you're proposing is would be my approach. It's a fun exercise because every time you do it, what was that old Bugles commercial? <laughs> every time you put your hand in, you get a whole new ball game or something <laughs> nonsensical <laughs> like that. For those of you who are not alive in the 60s and 70s, you can just ignore me. The fun is you get to use your camera. You don't spend a lot of money, and every frame is going to be different. With some diligent practice and review, you could very well come away with an image that will make a brilliant large print. And as you've discovered, a low ISO and a smaller aperture gives you more time to light paint. So if you got something interesting from this, and you made a print... So large prints are powerful, and I'm guessing that large prints of small stuff would be even more powerful? Well, of course, because they're distinguished by their deviation from the norm. We're not used to seeing small things really big. Well, that's definitely not the same old, same old. And it sounds like fun. I can see all kinds of things, particularly right now where we're in this transitional period where there's really nothing outside that's worth going and playing with. Right. We don't have any snow on the ground for interesting light. Uh, mostly what we've got is gray mud and rivers of dog awful. 
some people yes. just can't pick up after their animals. Yep. I agree. It will definitely be a fun exercise and definitely different. So I think I wet my appetite yesterday, and I'm certainly going to find all kinds of things that I can use on this and give it a try. Yeah, I agree. There's randomness and not a little chaos that goes into the making of these kinds of images. And you might find something that's in fact rather abstract. Thanks very much to all of our listeners. If you would like to support the channel, you can do so with a donation by clicking support the channel on the main page at thephotovideoguy.ca. If you shop at BNH Photo Video, please do so through the link on the main page. As it pays us a small commission, please submit a comment or send in a question. I read and respond to all. On behalf of the channel, we wish you peace and health. <laughs>